Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down Swansfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shawnee man? It's the Irish Lions Second Captain's Football Podcast. Oh, Mike David and Kieran Murphy here. Hello there, Owen. Uh, no Ken early, unfortunately, for you today. Ken is away, but we do have a lot of Champions League to talk about. And I have to start by commiserating with poor old Alvaro Morata, the Juventus forward, mm-hmm. who was practically grief-stricken after scoring the goal that sent his team into the final. The reason... Well, this is without doubt one of the great non-celebration celebrations against a former team. Mm-hmm. I've watched a number of times now, Murph such as my obsession with this particular phenomenon in the game, he, he, he knocks the ball in, right? And there's a fraction of a second. If you watch it enough times, like 120 times as mm-hmm. I watched it, you'll see there's a fraction of a second where his leg movement in the immediate aftermath of scoring the goal betrays his true motion. There's an ever so slight, I would say maybe a jerky motion, mm. as though he's about to sprint off in celebration. But then he remembers that he used to play for Real Madrid, so he's not allowed to celebrate. I think there's a law, there's some sort of law mm. against celebrating puts on his best sad face and reluctantly accepts the congratulations of his teammates. You must be so proud, though, because you are the go-to man for this. <laughs> a lot of people tweet me when these things happen. I mean, yeah. and Thank all, you for those tweets. Yeah, and you know, uh, some, some also include the second captain's uh, Twitter handles. So we see, I would say, maybe like a fifth <laughs> of this total number of tweets. I mean, it's like a concussion now. So, I mean, you bang on about concussion so much that anytime anyone basically has a headache in a sporting event, <laughs> like uh, happening anywhere in the world, they'll immediately, I'm sure McDevitt's watching it and I'm sure he'll appreciate the tweet. Concussions, um, non-celebration celebrations and the Johnny Sexton. Johnny Sexton's book. autobiography, yeah. There are three yeah. things. If I someone is reading the Johnny Sexton autobiography right now, they're probably about to or already have uh, written you a tweet. Do you know what's really it. grinding my gears about this particular one, Murphy? Yeah. It was... This isn't the guy who's moved from a minnow to a giant and has crushed the minnow on his return. Yeah. He's moved from Real Madrid sideways to Juventus and Real Madrid will be in another final next year. It's no bit. It doesn't really matter. They had their decima last year. It's yeah, all let's fine. let's everyone just... Like, to be honest, I think he over-egged it completely. <laughs> I mean, my God, he looked so sad. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's one thing to not celebrate as in out of respect. Yeah. Put your hands up and say, I'm not celebrating. I'm not running off like a lunatic. You know, I'm not celebrating. But to go so far beyond the, I'm not celebrating, not only am I not celebrating, literally it looks like someone's just shot my dog. That's what he looked like. That, that's the face that he was, that, that he was wearing. I didn't celebrate Outrageous. the goal. I was never going to, the 22-year-old said. It was a bittersweet and strange sensation for me. I wish I had scored against another team. Well, you were playing against that team. And yeah. It wasn't bittersweet. It was sweet. It was a yeah, sweet, really, really sweet. All right, Murph, you're happy, though, that Juventus got through. I believe you didn't really fancy, like a lot of people have seen on Twitter today, Ian Dark among them, Murph, one of your commentating heroes, I'm sure. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. making Bo- the point boxing that, and, and, and football. Uh, yes, multifaceted. Uh, he made the point that, as other people have made, at least we don't have to go through the all the histrionics that people hate about modern football are encapsulated in the Classicos, yeah. especially the ones that have a higher... Uh, importance level attached so we're not going to have that this time around yeah I mean the, the classical is uh, and Juventus have never done anything wrong historically so yeah. that's all fine yeah it's not um, yeah the classicals it, you, they're still enjoyable but there's a lot of it where it's just God 
grow up. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of pretty juvenile behaviour that goes on in uh, Costco's, which is funny, you know, which is fine. Um, but the the Champions League, the European Cup beforehand, was a pitting the best teams against best teams in other countries that haven't, you know, they don't get a chance to play all that often. Barcelona and Real play so often that... Uh, yeah, it's, I, I'm relieved. I'm I, I, relieved. I agree, I, I don't think, and I do enjoy the Classicos, and when I finally got to go to one, it really was one of these moments where I can't yeah. believe I'm at this match. between. It, it's, no matter what era it is, but particularly in the more recent era when both teams have a claim to be the best in Europe, mm. it's an absolutely incredible fixture, but it's already there a number of times. They play in the Spanish Cup, they play so often mm. in the league, they could potentially play each other whatever amount of times a year. I, I kind of agree with you. There's something a little different, a little yeah. old-fashioned about a Juventus fight. And see, there's also that as well, that you have, for whatever, guys our age grew up watching Juve being brilliant in the Champions League, in the European Cup, and then the Champions League, say, 95, 96, 97. These were formative years in my footballing education. And uh, to see Juve back there... It's actually, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a throwback to those days, though. We'll chat to Gabriele Marcotti about that. We'll get the reaction in Madrid. And we'll also have some Jack Grealish chat right after this. That's right, you're a real Irishman. Did you get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? I got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Born and bred, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a place called Navin. Well, I hope Jack Reed actually listens to this, Murph. This is, uh, P-Bezo was nearly designed for him. Jade. Jizzle is what we should call it, really, by rights. But uh, no, hello there, Owen. It's time for our very latest Pierce Brosnan Emigrant Shoutout, where we read out correspondences from our emigrant brothers and sisters, such as Jack, Jack Grealish, uh, who have fled these shores in search of work, love, or just a place they call home where it's not pissing rain 90% of the effing time. Anyway, this week's letter comes from Thailand, temporary home, of course, to many young Irish people who subsequently come home wearing beads and taking a relaxed attitude towards cleanliness and general hygiene. <laughs> Brian Blanfield writes... Dear Second Captains, I've been pouring your podcast over my membrane since day one. I'm sure that I would approve of any superlative comments that uh, Murph could insert here to describe your good selves. Okay. Here in Thailand, I've been listening to you for years, but now it's my turn for momentary tilted greatness as I try to elbow my way into the light I'm leading from Pierce Brosnan's Emergent Shoutouts. This email's a lot longer than I'm reading out. Did he say he's pouring his... He's been pouring a podcast over his earlobes? His membranes. Oh, his membranes. Oh, sorry, that's okay, yeah. Not really, but I... Uh, Thaiport FC are my local soccer passion here. We are perennial strugglers in the Thai Premier League. Uh, this season, I've decided to try and see every game in the flesh, Brian, uh, and this has brought me to some very far-flung corners of this land of smiles. Uh, one journey this season took me to the remote border town of Sisaket, an eight-hour bus journey from my home in Bangkok. This dusty town on the Cambodian border showed little by the way of excitement pre-game as my bewildered girlfriend and I wandered around this sleepy town. Little did I know the secret that this agricultural-dependent community held. Turning the corner, I couldn't believe my eyes to see our hero, Mr. Brosnan, plastered all over the local hairdressers. What, what a sight for sore eyes. New modern gents and ladies had decided that the one and only star to approach on the planet with a view to showing the lo- local populace what a style icon means was our man from Navin. I'm sure this lucrative synergistic meeting of market forces has helped both of their respective businesses. Uh, no end. We went on to lose the game, as is commonplace, but we all know the winner in this story. Thank you for your email, Brian. Uh, as we know, we here have a very close and long-standing relationship with Pierce's lawyers, so we'll just make sure that this is a legitimate business relationship, and if it's not, we will shut their asses down. Uh, but before we go, uh, uh, I have a question uh, for our listeners. If you want a P-Bezzo shout-out, but you're currently living in Ireland, well, I'm afraid Pierce Brosnan has some harsh words for you. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Two observations on that email, Murph. Okay. One, you you said that was the condensed version? It, extremely condensed. I wow. shortened it by about two thirds. <laughs> and it was Thanks wordy. Thanks James Joyce for emailing yeah. in there. It was wordy, but I mean, you know, it, it, it did get the, mess, the message across. And secondly, I really hope that guy, what's his name again, sorry? Brian Blanchfield. Brian Blanchfield, sorry. I really hope Brian's girlfriend is also into football, because if he's dragging her eight hours on a bus journey, a rickety old bus to somewhere near Cambodia for a match, you know the team is going to lose. She has to be into football. There can be no way there's, that I, is going to work any, any, any other that. way. So uh, congrats to, to both of them on their life in Thailand. Right, Emmett Malone has popped down to us to talk Jack Grealish. Emmett, how are you? Well, I'm good, thanks. Only you? Uh, I'm pretty good. I've noticed, I don't know if you would agree with this, but a slight change in tone this week around Jack Grealish. This is the first time that he's really actively had a chance to, to turn yeah. us down since the whole thing blew up. Up until now, Irish fans have been quite patient about the whole thing and it's been quite a positive story in that... Uh, everyone is just talking about how great this young player is yeah. and how hopefully he'll play for us. 
now it's beco- it, it's gotten to the stage now that it's actually more of an emotive device, divisive issue? Sure. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a, up to now that maybe um, the question was whether he would get a, a senior call-up, what, what point he would get a senior call-up, and whether, you know, the under-21s might be slightly beneath him at this stage, you know. And um, and now, you know, O'Neill has, has, has given him his chance, and uh, and suddenly he's, he's out there, you know, actively being seen to be turning down a, a call-up, which, of course, in, in many people's eyes is the, the greatest sin a footballer can never commit. It is, yeah. Kenny Cunningham, uh, Brian O'Driscoll actually had a say yesterday. He said, I couldn't agree more with, uh, he said he couldn't agree more with Kenny Cunningham. Cunningham had said that he wouldn't call Grealish up again yeah, I was, for the Ireland team. What do you think? I, of that? I was surprised by that, but I'm not surprised that view is out there. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised that, that you know, uh, senior internationals do that. I'm sure Kenny um, would have played with players down the years who made calculations much like this. Um, I think that if, you know, if we get, find ourselves in a situation where over down the years we've played, you know, the likes of um, uh, Tony Cascarino and Jason McAteer and Phil Babb and guys who, you know, um, Andy Townsend made a great contribution for Ireland and, you know, in, in certainly some more than others, obviously, but, but you know, down the years we've had a, a great many English-born players uh, who've committed to the cause. Um, some of them have, when you talk to them afterwards, when you hear them talking afterwards about their experience, it clearly had a profound effect upon them. Um, they became heroes, possibly in many cases not not held in the same sort of esteem as as, as Irish born players. Um, but guys who 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 helped the team along the way and helped on some very very big days. I think if we're saying that if you know for a young lad like this who definitely I well I think you know appears to feel conflicted, genuinely conflicted about his own, you know, nationality, his own ethnic identity, all of those things, all of those things that we talk about in very positive ways most of the time. If he is genuinely conflicted about that and wants to take time out to consider it and arrives at it, either arrives at a decision where he decides that it is Ireland that he wants to play for or more likely, as, as we all seem to be kind of guessing from a bit of a distance at the minute, that he wants to hold on and see can he play for the country where he was born and where his father came from uh, and that he also clearly identifies with. But that doesn't happen for him. And that at the end of the day, he falls back on a position that he plays for a country where he clearly identified with too. He's played GEA as he's been growing up. He's clearly, you know, been well aware. He's, he, I think he has Irish uh, grandparents on both sides. He's clearly well aware of, of his Irish origins. He's clearly, you know, embraced those uh, to a large extent uh, as he's been growing up. Uh, and there has been, you know, clearly some parental influence in all of that. If at the end of the day it doesn't work out that, you know, his first choice of playing for England um, uh, doesn't quite quite pan out for him and he falls back on playing for, for a country that he still identifies with, are we seriously to say that that's worse, you know, than... Any number of senior pros down the years for whom, you know, the England thing just never happened. They got a call up from Jack or whoever on the phone. They went, way, they did what is commonly regarded as the professional thing. Or they hopped on a kind of what was, a, you know, an already successful bandwagon in a team that was qualifying for tournaments. Or they went along for the crack, as, they, as, as, as some of them have uh, <laughs> said down the years. You know, that it was a big, a big laugh, a big, you know. Are we honestly saying that Jack Grealish is is going to be you know regarded more, you know in any worse light than those players? I, I would find that absolutely astonishing. Yeah, I I agree with you, and I also would say that this one call up in particular, what you're actually saying is make the choice, and then for your first game, come and play against England. Um, which you know, which is in itself a hugely emotive. I think that complicates. I, I think that complicates the thing, I, I, and I think that you know there is. Uh, Martin O'Neill made the point the other day, and it's a, and it's an entirely reasonable point that he was being called into the squad. He, he he was only going to. I think the proposal was he would only use him in the friendly game, uh, and that wouldn't tie down his future. But he'd get a feel of it. Uh, and he would get an experience of inter- senior international football. And on the one hand, that's perfectly reasonable. I think there are a couple of downsides to it. One, the first one, the most obvious one, is that it's complicated by the fact that he's been brought in to uh, to play against England, which might be that kind doesn't of the, really keep your options open. Uh, I think it's I think it's a difficult one. I don't think Roy Hodgson, you know, is going to really be too concerned in a couple of years' time if Grealish really delivers to the level. And and and, and O'Neill repeatedly made this point the other day, and I think he's absolutely right that Grealish is still a long way off an England cap. Um, I don't think there's any, you know, the the odd kind of uh, uh, outraged uh, column in the Daily Mail aside, there isn't, you know, a great deal of excitement one way or the other about Jack Grealish in in, in, in 
in, in England at the minute. You know, it, it, it's a bit further down the road. And, and we've seen a lot of players reach the point that Jack Grealish has reached uh, at this stage and for, you know, there to be some in excitement in England and for those players to vanish without a trace over the years that follow. We've had a couple of them ourselves. Um, um, but... But certainly that whole thing of playing them against England was was potentially difficult for him and clearly is you know there, there is that kind of uh, that, that conflict going on um, but I do think also that he may have felt that to come in and deal with O'Neill and to deal with Keane and to deal with the other senior players would involve a certain amount of pressure that it would mm. make it more difficult to make the uh, 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 you know a clean decision after the summer. He previously said he would be available in, in September. My impression the other day from O'Neill was that that was kind of no longer the case. The, the father seems to have suggested that that kind of is possibly still the case. I think we just have to give him time. We have to give him space. He's entitled to make this decision. He seems to be making it for, despite reports, uh, which I can't see any basis for whatsoever and certainly weren't stood up by O'Neill the other day What O'Neill was completely at, at odds with what O'Neill was saying the other day. He seems to be under no pressure, particularly from his club or from an agent or anything like that. He seems to be sitting down and mulling over this in a most sincere way, looking into his heart and seeing what you know what he wants to do here, and I think that's to be respected. Yeah, but how long do you give him? I, mean, I think we we can all uh, respect the fact that uh, the England game would be difficult. Yeah, but how long after that? Do I, you... Honestly, I think you give him as long as it takes, and um, and at whatever point, I mean, he's clearly, of course, what he has embarked upon is a gamble here, but if he's twenty four or twenty five. You know, five years down the line and, he, and he's only finally realising at that stage that an England cap isn't going to happen for him then it's up to whoever is the Ireland manager at the time to make a call on that in those circumstances I think the difficulty for him is that in the meantime he's going to have five years of this and that's going to be a problem for and him And the other players are going to have five years this is something yeah. Stephen Hunt brought up uh, in uh, relation to Stephen Ireland that the players had no issue with Stephen Ireland at the start he was out of the squad they would have welcomed him back after a couple of years of it all, all they were hearing about was how great Stephen Ireland was and how he was needed back in the squad and it really annoyed them after a while. Would, I, that, would that be an issue more so than the emotive I can absolutely understand that that was a problem. I mean, I think Stephen Ireland was a different case and Stephen Ireland kept on, you know, there certainly the sense was that Stephen Ireland kept on sending out very, very mixed messages. Um, he was playing a very complicated and slightly bizarre game. Um, so one day there'd be a, a headline, you know, with sources close to, uh, to Stephen Ireland, you know, largely his father, it seemed, saying that Stephen Ireland... Um, wants to come back. All he needs is a bit of respect from the squad or from the manager or whatever. Trapattoni was constantly kind of harassed about him and had to go and meet him and all this sort of stuff. I mean, the Ireland, I, I, can, I can absolutely understand where Hunt is coming from, but the, the Ireland case, to some extent, is a bad example. I think that if, if Grealish starts playing those sort of games, then he will, you know, the, the situation will change for him. Or but, if he just, if he continues to thrive in his career but doesn't play for England and you say, for example, you give him five years if needs be, that could be five years of these sort of press conferences uh, and five years of other players in the Ireland squad hearing about this guy so that by the time he eventually did play for I, Ireland, they'd, be, they'd have taken against him. That's possible, but I don't think ultimately that's Grealish's fault. I think he's entitled to make his call. I think he's entitled to go away and mull over it. And, I mean, I think that the, the thing he did in, in, in uh, what, what would it have been, March, um, was a healthy enough thing for him to come back and say, OK, I'll be back in September. In a sense, everybody else has broken that so far. We haven't seen for sure whether he's going to break it, but we've seen, we've seen O'Neill now try and call him in on the basis that the circumstances have changed at club level. We've seen the press, as you say, you know, and, and this is the, the danger, that it will endlessly unfold at every press conference. And I think this has pressed O'Neill into it to a certain extent, rather than come in and face another hour and a half of why haven't you called um, uh, Grealish in. He's tried to preempt that, he's tried to call him in, but essentially he is the one that has broken what was a kind of standing commitment by the player. Um, the press will do it and the players will suffer from that. And that is a danger. But that's not Grealish's fault. Okay, the, you said that Martin O'Neill has, has broken this. Uh, I, I can absolutely understand okay. why. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, you know. may, maybe he should have broken it before. But the argument we're talking about well, the well, difficulties in the trying to get him involved in the lead up to the England game. Uh, I mean, a lot's been said at this stage about the US Cup last year being the time that you could have brought him in. Uh, how how much of how we're going to view O'Neill's reign will actually revolve around this subject if he doesn't get Jack Grealish? If we see Jack Grealish in an English jersey at some stage next season. Does it reflect poorly on O'Neill? I don't think so, hugely. I, I don't think that, you know, I mean, 
for a start, uh, you go back to the whole thing of bringing them into a senior squad and what it achieves. If it's a friendly game, then it doesn't achieve a great deal in terms of tying them down. What it does do is involve them in a squad and give them a taste of it. And I think that's a positive thing to offer him. I think it's also understandable that if he is kind of conflicted about this, that he turns it down. Um, uh, he sees he's seen this thing as part of a bigger picture. Uh, he's obviously been influenced by his father, who seems to exert a great deal of influence over over his career. But I, again, all in, I think, as far as we can tell, a fairly positive way here. I think O'Neill has made the effort now. I think he's tried to bring him in. There's not a great deal he can do if if the player doesn't want to come in. He seemed quite downcast about it um, uh, the other day and disappointed. But I mean, he was he appeared to be coming into a press conference having virtually, literally put the phone down to the guy, you know, which was a kind of remarkable enough situation in itself. But when he was asked about, A, his, the player's motives, and, and B, the, the kind of idea of, of England coming calling, I thought O'Neill was very respectful of, of the idea that as, as a lad who was born in England, you know, to English parents, uh, to English-born parents, um, that, that he was entitled to feel a, an emotional affinity to that country. And, and I think that's something that we should respect. We have a whole generation of young players coming through here, born to parent, born in some cases themselves in Africa, or born to African um, uh, parents. And those players are representing Ireland at a variety of underage levels. Now, in the years to come, you know, there are going to be pressures from the, the, you know, the, 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 the countries that they have come from, or their families have come from in Africa, for those players to play for those countries. Well, we have to ask ourselves, who should these players identify with? You know? And if they identify with Ireland, then, then they're, they're in exactly the same situation that Grealish is picking for, picking for uh, um, pick, pick, picking England. Yeah. You know? yeah. We have to, you know, we, if they didn't identify with Ireland, then we would, we would you know, then in that case, we should do some real soul searching about why. After after growing up here from very early ages, or in some cases being born here, they haven't identified here. Otherwise, we're back to the idea of the of of the Andy Townsends of, of the world playing the game, you know, playing the rules. And there are many cases in which we have done that. And I've absolutely accepted that you know a Martin O'Neill or you know a Trap goes out and gets a guy who clearly has no international options, not, you know, no, not in the real world because he's not good enough to play for England, but he can do a job for us. That's a different case, and it's also to be respected, but it's to be respected for what it is, and it's a very different thing than what appears to be going on with Grealish here. Yeah, um, and I, I would agree with pretty much everything you've said there, but in relation to O'Neill, he had his assistant manager watching Jack Grealish in training every single, every single day. Yeah. And uh, up until obviously Keane left uh, Villa and there was a, a suggestion made in March I believe it was that oh well you know Jack probably thought he was going to get 20 games this year but it hasn't worked out for him and so as a result Martin O'Neill doubled down on Paul Lambert's terrible mistake of not playing Jack Grealish and that if you know O'Neill yeah. was basically saying well you know if he'd played 20 games in the in the Premier League this year then we we might have brought him in sure but what you're actually doing there is you're letting Paul Lambert pick the Irish squad in effect in relation to Jack Grealish at least. And that except would be... I think he could... OK, I, I accept the fact that Keane was in a particular position to, to, to see... Uh to see um, Grealish play in the reserves or train in the re- train at the team mm. in the first team squad or play in the reserves or the under twenty one team at the club or whatever, I, I, I accept that to some extent. But I mean, you know, the international team has to be about to some extent what players do in first team situations. And, and O'Neill again, I don't want to kind of sound like I'm O'Neill's biggest fan. I, you know, I'm kind of critical of some of the things he's done or whatever. But like he, he talked about this the other day again and talked about what had changed in the in the in the subsequent. Uh, three or four months was that he's now playing at a top level, starting games rather than coming on in them, and and lasting ninety minutes to the extent that he's still making a major impact in the last twenty minutes of games. Now that I I think is a reasonable argument for involving somebody in an international squad, other than we all think he's the next big thing because we would have had a lot of players in the squads down the years, you know, on the basis of of you know coaches going to see them in training games or training actual training sessions or under 21 teams I mean is that really seriously what we see the under uh, what the senior squad is about well there might have been enough in that to at least take him to the US last summer to give him a taste of it to give him the week not necessarily to cap him but to continue the process of trying to make this talented young player an Irish international because this is one of the few areas that Martin O'Neill has any control over in international football. He can't, re- he can't improve a technical level, doesn't have the players for very long at a go. There are a lot of things you're limited by 
when you're managing an international team, one area you do have a certain level of power over is trying to recruit players. Yeah. And this is one guy that it looks like now he probably won't be able to recruit. It, it does look that way, assuming, assuming you know, he gets to the stage where, where he plays for England. It does look that way. But I, I do kind of wonder about you know, what he'd done at that stage. He played for, was it Notts County? He played 25 games for Notts County or something by the time they were going to the States last summer. And to some extent, I, I can see that there was some value in it. We're not entirely, like the issue of who he played for long term was already a pretty live issue by last summer. Um, we knew that there was a question mark over, over whether he would w- whether he would declare for us in, in the longer term. I mean, we've had this issue with, you know, uh, Patrick Bamford at the moment. He's been offered a five-year deal by Chelsea at the moment. That's how, you know, seriously they take him. And in, in many ways, I think, you know, given our respective strengths in different areas, I think he may actually be a bigger loss to us. Mm. Um, Michael Keane, the, the, the uh, then Manchester United defender, played more recently with Burnley, has switched and, and started playing for England, having subsequent and he may be back you know because it doesn't you know he hasn't his tra- career trajectory since then hasn't suggested that he's you know hurtling towards uh, uh, senior England international caps so he could be playing for us again so we, we could be witnessing exactly the sort of kind of uh, situation that we're, we're, we're seeing uh, with Grealish but in two three four years time if he's playing at a fairly high level I, I don't think too many people will be uh, mulling too long over the fact that he that he that he, he played underage for us switched and switched back I just wonder whether all of those sort of players should be brought into senior squads the whole time, you know, on the basis that they might switch at some stage. They might be good enough. We've seen a lot of players come and go, and I don't really think you can operate. I mean, Martin O'Neill has some serious issues to address in terms of where the Irish team is, where the the squad is. Right now, we have a declining um, world ranking, which is going to knacker our uh, our our uh, seeding uh, for the next World Cup qualifiers when the draw is made in July, we're almost certainly going to be uh, fourth seeds. Um, we have we're, we look like long shots to qualify for the biggest uh, European Championship that there has ever been. A tournament, you know, whose expansion was proposed by us on the basis that it would mean it would we, we couldn't there, possibly yeah. fail to qualify for it anymore. Um, he has more immediate problems. And I'm not saying that it isn't part of his responsibility for the man who comes after. But, you know, despite his kind of his, his, his suggestion recently that he's kind of happy to stay uh, on uh, for another couple of years as long as we, we, we give it a go uh, over the tail end of this campaign, uh, the early suggestions where he was here for two years and that failure to qualify for Euro 2016 would be failure. Uh, and that's what he's staring down the barrel of a gun at the moment. Uh, you know, so to a sense, uh, to to a certain expect, uh, extent, I can understand that his his priority wasn't uh, wasn't a, 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 an eighteen year old player last summer, uh, and how he might fare in his early twenties for some manager yet to come. It's really clear when we're having this kind of conversation how low the base has fallen of Irish players sure. compared to English. We're talking about a, a player like Jack Grealish who would possibly get into our team uh, at the moment, and you're saying he's not anywhere close to getting a cap for England, which is just a bald way of, of stating how high, how far away we are now, yeah. and we're seeing this. But 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 I mean, you know, look, you can argue that even even when we've been at our best, yeah, it, 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 we've been we've we've tended, to, you know, one of the great things, and it's a celebrated aspect of our story, is that we've tended to have teams that amounted to far more than some of their parts. In some cases, we had players who were out there motivated in no small part by proving a point to English managers players, that they were so, overlooked. The, 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 do players have to look a little further afield now? We're Looking at, we were talking at Hull City earlier on this week, possibly going down now with four established Irish yeah. international with them. You wrote a piece last month, uh, just kind of querying why there's this obsession with Irish players going to England and England only. Yeah. It's very rare that a player goes to any other country. Obviously, there could be language barriers and culture, cultural barriers, but it strikes me that one smart agent, for example, yeah. sh- should be able to f- fix a few of those issues and uh, give a pathway to, I don't know, the Dutch league, any, any of these other leagues where it's, they might be taught a higher technical it's, level? It's certainly for the... The culture has always seemed to be here that sending, you know, sending teams, sending players, young players to the Premier League is the be-all and end-all of it, you know? Um, there isn't a club here that I'm aware of, and I could be, I could be wrong about this. Uh, I'm open to correction, but there isn't a club in the DDSL or down the country or anywhere with, with links to a European club that say, like, you know, we have talented lads here we'd send them to Germany or to the Netherlands or to France, you know, and, and there doesn't seem to be anything standing in the way of that other than, you know, a, a culturally ingrained thing in our, in our young players, in our clubs, in our people um, that, that 
that travelling beyond English speaking uh, countries is 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 hugely alien to us. Um, I, I remember being at a um, a Dutch uh, managers press conference at Euro two thousand. Um, and and you know and the the press officer standing up and saying that um, and God the, the name of the manager uh, deserts me at the moment, but uh, saying that that the manager would answer questions in uh, Dutch, followed by Spanish, followed by Italian, <laughs> followed by German, German, followed by languages of your choice. Um, <laughs> a little show offy languages of your choice, a, 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 a lot showy, uh, yeah. show offy. But at the same time, you know, he was able to do it. And and the Dutch, we all know, if you if you if you go to the Netherlands, um, you know, pretty much everyone can speak English, which certainly facilitates, and pretty much everyone can speak German. So you know, their their choices in terms of moving abroad are are, are a lot a lot greater to start with. But then there's also the backup cultural thing that learning languages, you know, is just seen as a kind of you know something you do. And so the options of going to Spain and Italy and France and all those other things are in Russia or wherever um, is also just seen as something well like if you go there you will learn the language not you won't go there because you'd have to learn the language we saw like last night speculation I think that that Bale hasn't learned Spanish now that seems to be at odds I I remember seeing a piece with him over there um, very early on and he seemed to be throwing himself into learning language so I don't know whether that's true or not but there does seem to be this barrier and what we've seen here is that you know even with the League of Ireland when the the collapse happened and you know players in the league were having their, their wages absolutely slashed well what we'd already we'd seen was that some of those clubs had proven good enough um, in the early stages of European competition to beat you know clubs that probably would have been paying higher wages than these players were now on here, and yet we saw barely any of them you know the odd one Shane Robinson I think Connor Powell or whatever uh, going going to uh, going to the Nordic countries, um, but virtually no other movement we 've had Dominic Foley go to Belgium when he wasn 't getting his wages from bohemians we 've had K- Killian Sheridan, um, the only player famously mm-hmm. to play Champions League this year, but again he 's gone to a country where you know there wouldn 't be a language problem you know everybody in Cyprus speaks English. Um, so this, uh, what we see though, what we have seen in in droves, is players go to Australia on on short term contracts, uh, one year visas, playing the, essentially the equivalent of of the Leinster League over there, but getting a, getting a few quid for it. We now see players going to America to play in the NASL. Um, hopefully, the development of the MLS will seriously broaden. Uh, the options there. If the wages improve so that you don't have to be one of two or three players in a team to make any sort of decent living um, because some of the wage levels over there would not really encourage somebody to relocate across the continent. Um, I think that could be a huge bonus uh, for for the development of Irish players in the future uh, that it would be playing at a high level. You know, But beyond that, why? Why? Why are they not going to really strong leagues um, an hour's an hour an hour and a half flight away? Uh, why is there that culture that they don't think that they can go there that they can prove themselves they can't adapt to the culture? And why is there this culture? It seems amongst the people who run the Irish teams that you know if they go there they're sort of out of sight and out of mind. All right, we'll throw those questions out there for people to have a think about. Emmett, brilliant as always. Thanks, a thanks, thanks very much. I suppose an obvious problem here, and I, I really like Emmett's idea that players need to ideally need to open up their own minds. But as I mentioned, an agent or somebody from uh, another country, I w- would have thought could see that there's maybe an opportunity here to get talented young footballers. But the problem is that a lot of you know, people in Holland don't think that Irish players are that mm. talented. Don't really have any. And we're using Holland as an example, but uh, other football cultures don't really have any respect for the technical level of the Irish footballer, as is proven by every single international manager. What do you think of us, uh, uh, international manager X? <laughs> yeah, uh, good spirit. Uh, 
good high en- energy. English style play, yeah, high um, energy, physical. No matter what, and it used to be that was very much true in the Charlton years. Uh, it wasn't true in the Mick McCarthy years, particularly in that we had Damien Duff and Robbie Keane as our chief threats, and yet it was still the same thing. And now it's gone to being well. Unfortunately, we don't really have much of anything bar a pretty good spirit at the moment mm. but it's still there. It, it, all you still hear is how physically imposing we are you know the likes of Wes Hoolan and Aidan yeah. McGeady that's, uh, those kind of guys yeah and that's that's unfortunate but that is uh, that is how the world views us the, the you raise an interesting point there about the difficulties in particular for Grealish being introduced to the build up and he wouldn't be playing against England as we said Martin Neal made it pretty clear that he'd just be part of the build up mm. most likely but he'd still be in the squad he'd still be a member of the Republic of Ireland squad for a game against England, he'd be on the team bus, and stories have leaked out about the rebel songs and the, mm. the various, uh, I don't want to say anti-English, but certainly very pro-Irish uh, sort of ways that the players build themselves up for those games. So uh, if there was a, a tint of any sort of anti-English um, mm. feelings in that build-up, mightn't necessarily be the best one for Greenwich Yeah, it wouldn't be the most, the might not be the most representative of the actual feelings of the Irish people towards... Uh, Anglo-Irish <laughs> relations, let's say. All right, Kieran Canning is in Madrid, where they're trying to come to terms with the elimination for the Champions League. Kieran, what has the reaction been like? Um, I think the reaction in Madrid's been a bit, a bit strong. The front page of Market this, today described it as disaster of the century. Which, <laughs> when you lose by uh, you lose by one goal in the Champions League semi-final to a team like Juve, I think it's a bit strong. But I think the reaction in Madrid is is partly because the reaction in Barcelona that after Barcelona went through. Everyone was looking forward to uh, a Real Madrid-Barcelona final here. There's been quite a few times recently um, where both sides have made it to the semi-finals and, and been drawn apart and there's been the chance of a, a Barcelona-Madrid final and it's still never come through. I have to say I'm not as surprised as maybe some people are um, that the Juventus went through. Real Madrid really haven't recovered um, anywhere near the sort of form they had in that sort of... Uh, so September to December time um, when they won 22 games in a row. They'd won a particularly bad period um, around January, February time when they nearly went out to Schalke, uh, losing 4-3 at home when they had a lot of injuries. And even though they've got most of those players back, um, James was out, Ramos was out and they've come back, they haven't got back into that sort of form. They're still missing Modric, who seems to be the most important player in, in the midfield to, to knit everything together to get that balance between defence attack and to feed um, the front three and, and the way that they were earlier uh, in the season. And the front three, clearly, um, Bale, Benzema and Ronaldo are all suffering with different physical issues. Ronaldo um, has been a lot made of the fact that he's playing more and more like an old-fashioned number nine, that these goals come from one-touch finishes inside the box. Last night it came from a, a penalty. Bale and Benzema have just come back from injury. Benzema, that was his first game and over a month last night, he only lasted 60-odd minutes. And Bale's, one, suffering from just going back from an injury, but also just hasn't been in great form uh, all season. And you can see last night, he's kind of desperate to make an impression, but almost the more he, he tries, the more he fails. I was impressed by Bale afterwards, purely for fronting up and doing it. He certainly, I was watching RTE's coverage here, and he did the post-match interview with their reporter on the ground there. I don't know what the obligations are on Real Madrid players to come out and face the media but he also was there applauding the fans who haven't exactly been applauding him lately uh, I thought he showed a little bit of guts afterwards but I don't know if that's going to hold much water with the Real fans especially because he did it to he just did one interview to, to Sky Sports so the fact that we, we are seeing it or maybe the, the, the British guys in the press we managed to get uh, those quotes on the TV and, and the press room afterwards um doesn't really hold much water in Spain. Actually, but, so yeah, that, that might even annoy them more. It might even show them that that he's he's still very much connected to the British game and uh, hasn't done enough to the old Spanish lessons to do the post match t- uh, Spanish TV. Yeah, that's certainly um, something that's that's growing in the past few weeks as uh, his performances you know haven't haven't improved on the pitch. There's been a lot of uh, looking into why is it that he hasn't settled in as well as people expected, especially after. A lot of people talk about a brilliant first season. It was more a season that was of brilliant, of brilliant moments for him in the last season, scoring in the the finals. Because there were still times during the season where he wasn't as involved in the play um, as you would expect. And I think that was actually the most surprising thing of what he said last night was he seemed to be suggesting that he wasn't happy with his finishing this season, that he'd missed chances in the big moments like last night. But he was quite happy with his overall play. 
whereas most people that have watched him throughout his time in Madrid would say it almost been the opposite that he he had scored important goals, he had come up with some moments, but in the sort of run run of the game, he isn't involved enough. He doesn't connect enough with his teammates and especially with um, Benzema and, and Ronaldo. So the interesting thing for me with what he said last night was he was quite defiant and he's kept talking about, you know, there's something I can learn from and look forward to next season and improve for next season. The message he seemed to be putting out there was that he very much expects to stay at Real Madrid for another season. Yeah, I did pick that up in the RT interview. He was saying the same thing as well. So we'll see if that happens or not. The opposite, uh, it's the opposite phenomenon in Barcelona where their front three are gelling unbelievably well. I don't know if you felt that this one, this, the second leg of this tie, was maybe the best example of how three superstar players can actually combine if they leave the Eagles somewhere to decide. It's been remarkable how well it's, it's gone this season for Barcelona and those front three because there is always the risk. I remember when, when Suarez was signed, a lot of people were looking at it and comparing it to the Real Madrid Galactico period and saying that Barcelona had lost a bit of their essence and the idea of bringing the players through from the academy and having guys that played together for years and years, building up sort of almost pathological bond, whereas these three guys have seemed to be put together and almost instantly um, are able to read each other and play off each other. But I think it's, it's more the fact that when Messi um, was at his best a couple of, a couple of years ago, defences very much had to concentrate on him and try and stop him playing as much as possible. And now they can't do that. So because they have to, to cover Messi, uh, Suarez and Neymar as well, it frees up Messi a bit, but it also gives Suarez and Neymar plenty of room as well because the defence can't possibly cover all three of them. Um, and they're such, not just good footballers, but intelligent footballers that seem to be able to, to move off the ball very well, they find space. Um, and they have the vision as, as Suarez, uh, sorry, as yeah, Suarez showed for uh, both Neymar's goals the other night to to pick out their teammate when they're in a better position. And more than just vision, I think, Kieran, with Suarez, particularly that first goal, just the, the the unselfishness to actually pass that ball to Neymar because he was in a great position to possibly score himself. And I know people bigged up the partnership that Suarez had with Sturridge at Liverpool. I always felt though that he was passing to Sturridge when he had to, and when he didn't have an angle on goal himself. I never would have seen him passing up, I'm sure Liverpool fans might be screaming at, at the podcast at the moment, they might remember mo- uh, might remember particular instances of him passing up a goal-scoring opportunity like that. I, I never felt that that was the case. I always thought he felt the onus was on him to score and he wanted wanted that kind of glory, whereas he seriously subjugated that part of the ego last night, or uh, two nights ago. I think more than anything, it's possibly the respect that there is between the three of them. You know, they know how good the, all the other, well, the other two are. Um, and that relationship has blossomed throughout the season because Suarez has started off, he really actually had some, some problems finding that earlier on when he came back from his band, but the one thing that he was producing straight from the off was assists for um, Neymar and, and Messi. Messi playing in this sort of deeper role um, is showing that he could have been the best midfield player for the past you know, six or seven years if he'd wanted to. He's got such um, ability in his passing and Neymar feels um, as if he's been very well treated by, by Messi and Suarez. The the lot was made of um, the game against Cordoba a couple of weeks ago where Messi was on a hat-trick and uh, Barcelona gave, gave him the penalty and he gave the penalty to Neymar because Neymar hadn't scored that day and Neymar has spoken a lot about how grateful he was for that gesture or something they'll forget. Um, and you see in the way that Suarez set up Neymar uh, in those two goals that he feels as if these guys are there and they're working for him. I would say sometimes the problem that Neymar's had earlier in the season, and you saw actually towards the end of that game against Bayern as well, that when he's through in goal, sometimes he, he looks for the other two too much. You know, he, there was one um, just towards the end where he did that great piece of skill and he was through a Neuer and he, he tried to square it to Messi and just mistimed the pass. Um, but certainly there seems to be a very good relationship between the three, um, not just on the field, but it seems to get on very well off the field, something that both uh, Messi and Suarez have, have spoken about. And you can see that camaraderie um, within the Barcelona team at the moment that maybe hasn't been there in the past few years. I think maybe the, the pain of missing out on any trophies last season, which was such a, a shock to the system for those players that have won so much and so consistently for so many years, um, has driven them on to now being on the verge of well, one game away in every competition um, for winning the treble. 
Uh, yeah, and I mean, if what you're talking about there sounds uh, <clears throat> maybe uh, a little bit like some sort of brilliant managerial alchemy to get these three players uh, into a team and playing as well and getting on as well as uh, as they are doing. I, something tells me, though, that Luis Enrique is, is not getting a massive amount of credit here, that maybe the, the, the credit that he's getting is for deciding that Lionel Messi is more powerful than he will ever be. So let's just get on with Leo Messi and uh, I'll try and stay out of the way wherever possible. <laughs> I think tactically, it's um, easy to say that because I think <laughs> Suarez put Luis Enrique under the bus a bit a few months ago in a, a radio interview when they talked about um, his changing of positions with Messi and earlier in the season they started off with Messi more still in the false nine and Suarez on the right. And how did the, the change go about where Suarez played through the middle and, and Messi played to the right? And Suarez said that uh, just during one game and uh, Lionel Tom would stay up there. And so, so that's how that change came about. But what I do think Luis Enrique deserves a huge amount of credit for, and it's a very good comparison um, with Real Madrid. Earlier in the season when Real Madrid were winning those 22 games in a row um, and Luis Enrique went until I think it was middle of January without um, naming the same team twice. Um, there was a lot of criticism for Luis Enrique for not finding, not knowing his best eleven, not allowing the players to get into a rhythm. Um, and whereas Ancelotti wasn't rotating barely at all, he he has very few players in that Real Madrid squad that he really trusts. And you saw that again last night because he only made one substitution when Real Madrid were chasing the game and, and needing a goal. But because Luis Enrique did rotate so much in that first part of the season, he, he gave significant periods of rest. Um, to most players apart from Messi, who's played pretty much every game. Neymar came off in a lot of games, even though he didn't like it. Suarez obviously had uh, the ban, so he had that little bit of a break after the World Cup. It's quite obvious that, that Barcelona have got to this stage of the season physically much fresher and much stronger than Real Madrid, and that's that's proved decisive in this run-in, both to the Liga title race and in the Champions League. Aside from the basic joy that everybody in Barcelona is feeling today at Real Madrid's humiliating exit... Is it better for them to be facing Juve in tactical and in emotional terms, do you think, in the final, rather than facing into another Clásico? Emotionally, certainly. Uh, there's That has been the reaction in the Barcelona media as well, that the, the reaction from the dressing room has been they didn't want this sort of three weeks build-up to what would arguably be the biggest club game of all time, you know, Real Madrid-Barcelona final and the Champions League, and something that, if they got to the final of the Champions League, even having won La Liga and if they win the, the Cup del Rey, that, that game would define their season. Now I think if they even if they lost to Juventus, it would be a huge disappointment to lose out in the treble, but they would recognise that you know they had they had won two trophies or could win two trophies and it had been a good season. Tactically, it's hard to say. I mean, you would think that if they were playing against a, a Madrid team in top form, certainly you'd, you'd rather face um, Juventus and there would be that danger that Real Madrid could recuperate in those two or three weeks, get physically a bit fresher, get Modric back. Um, and I think Barcelona certainly believe in themselves with that front three that they can break down that Juventus defence that held so strong at the Bernabeu last night. All right, Kieran Cannon, great stuff. Thanks a million. No problem. Thanks for having me on. I'm pretty interested in Luis Suarez. I hadn't realised that, that Suarez had thrown... Obviously, Messi has thrown uh, Enrique under the bus in the past, but that Luis Suarez did so as well by essentially saying, well, we, we pretty much decided to make that tactical switch. We just had a little chat amongst ourselves. Very similar to a story you're going to hear in our later podcast with US Murph. We've been chatting to Brian, and LeBron James has done something similar to his coach in Cleveland. It's not helpful. <laughs> it's really, it's never helpful. He literally, he came out, he was, a play was drawn up. Uh, I don't want to take away too much from but Brian will tell the story better than I will anyway, yeah. so it's fine to hear it twice. A play was drawn up uh, for the final play of a game, vital playoff match that they were playing. He's playing for Cleveland now. Bearing in mind, he's gone from Miami Heat to Cleveland, his old club and his hometown club, where he's even more dominant as a personality. He's by a mile the most important person there. The play is drawn up. The play doesn't involve the ball getting into the hands of LeBron James for the buzzer-beating shot. LeBron James doesn't like this, tells the coach, here's the play we're going to do, right? We're going to get, see that guy, he's going to throw it to me, then I'll throw it into the net and then we'll all be delighted and we'll win. He then went to the media afterwards and explained this is what happened. <laughs> That's the most, you couldn't be thrown any further under the bus no, than LeBron James. No, no. I mean, if if, some, if that story somehow gets out via sources close to LeBron James, then that's bad. But, <laughs> you know. 
Anyway, that's that's the story for another podcast. Gabriele Marcotti uh, is ready to chat to us, Gabriele, about the... It was a bit of an old-school look to Juventus last night with Pirlo and Buffon still involved. A lot of their players are Italian, uh, particularly the defense, the guys in the defensive positions. I guess you must have enjoyed that performance. Um, I, I, I thought it was a good game. I, I think, actually, all four semifinals were, were really good games. Uh, you know, this one perhaps more for... Um, for tension, for for defending well, um, I I mean it was old school in the sense that a lot of the guys are old. Um, I don't think it was old school in terms of and uh, necessarily in terms of approach, in the sense that you know it wasn't uh, a sit back, defend and counter situation. Um, I thought it was um, it was it was much more modern in the way they approached it. And I thought it made sense because you know we we see this often in the Champions League. Uh, these are so many of these teams are teams that, that dominate, are used to having the ball, and it's kind of alien for them to to just go and park the bus. Um, and, and I think it was the right decision by Juve not to do that, but to defend and, and to, to, to pick their spots. Yeah, and, and I, I, I understand exactly the point that you're making there, but at the same time, when, the, when, the Juve, when Juve got their goal, there was a real sense that everyone knew exactly their job, that their job was, and to be positive while doing it, but... To just right, we have what we have, we hold now, and we can close this out. Um, oh, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you there. It, it does become about uh, about closing it out at one one. But I think you know, by the same token, um, I, I don't think it was a shut up shop performance, and and it could be because you know this is not a team that's that's built to do that, and it would have been the wrong choice at one one, knowing that. You know, Real Madrid have guys who can get goals at any time, and then if they score, all of a sudden it's two one. You're looking at extra time, and and then at that point you have to be more proactive. You have to be um, more more engaging. Kind of an extraordinary story for guys like Pirlo and particularly Buffon, who's been there the entire time at that club. Uh, how much of the mentality that the team have is down to those old guys who have seen? Well, certainly Buffon has seen the very worst of things there. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable actually. I mean, uh, I, I wrote a piece today for ESPN FC and, uh, I noted that, you know, the year that they were in, in the second division, uh, following the, the, the Calciopoli scandal, mm. um, you know, Buffon, Chiellini and Marchisio were playing for the club. Uh, that was nine years ago. And now here they are in a champions league final. Um, I think it, I, I think the veterans played a big part. Um, and I think it's also that there's also a broader message there about the evolution of Juve. I think over the last four years, uh, you know, Antonio Conte came in. He brought tremendous intensity. You know, he delivered three league titles. Um, but by the end, I think some of the veteran players had grown somewhat, somewhat weary of that. And so it took a guy like Allegri, a guy who's maybe a bit more about carrots than sticks, uh, you know, a bit more of a, um, of a diplomat, a bit more of a man manager. And he was probably the right guy for, for a veteran team. Um, you know, let's face it, Juventus are in the final, but if you look at this team, this isn't, you know, this isn't a team that's going to go on to win two, three, four Champions League titles, uh, partly because many of the players are older, some of the younger guys. You know, Real Madrid have a buyback clause on, on Morata. Tevez's contract is winding down. He's expressed a desire to go back to Argentina and end his career there at some point. Um, Pogba, obviously, is going to really struggle to hang on to him. So you have a situation where, you know, we're together, let's win now. And, uh, and you know, and I think at that point, that's where, where your leaders really step up. Gabriel, do you think it's good for the game that it's going to be Juve against Barcelona as opposed to yet another classical? I think it's good for the game that, um, you know, we don't have the same three teams at the top. I, I, I think it's kind of incredible that, you know, Real Madrid, five straight Champions League semifinals, Bayern, five straight Champions League semifinals, um, uh, Barcelona, four straight, uh, sort of four uh, Champions League semifinals in five years. That's not, that's not healthy going forward. Um, but that said, you know, we want to see the best teams play each other in, in the biggest games. And, you know, I think, you know, Real Madrid, Barcelona would have, would have offered a tremendous amount of storylines and, you know, probably would have pitted the two best teams or, or two of the three best teams in the world against each other rather than, you know, what we have now, which is more of a, you know, let's face it, an underdog favorite type situation. Will Juventus fancy their chances though? 
Well, I mean, I, I think they know that that they're the underdogs, but I think they also, you know, they'll relish the fact that they're playing Barcelona. They'll they'll, they'll relish the fact that you know they have a chance to to match up with them. Um, and in many ways, you know, they don't match up badly. I, they have an exceptional midfield. Uh, Pogba will presumably be fitter, uh, you know, come Champions League final time. Um, Arturo Vidal, who, who I think really struggled for, for, for nigh on 12 months with injuries and, and sort of a lower performance, he's been outstanding for the last five or six weeks. Um, and obviously Tevez and Morata are firing in all, on all cylinders. So, you know, they're going to go into this game strong and they're going to feel that, you know, they can they can match up. Now, that said, obviously, if you've got Neymar, Suarez, and Messi running at you in the open field, well, you know, <laughs> unless you have an army of Thiago Silva's back there, uh, it's going to be tough. All right. Got ready. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Million. My pleasure. Murph, you're a Gianluigi Buffon fan? Yeah, I actually uh, turned over to Sky Sports to watch some of their coverage before the big game last night. And uh, they did an interview with Gianluigi Buffon. And um, it's, just, it's one of those situations where you realise you have been watching Gianluigi Buffon play football for a long, oh. long time. Um, and he he, just, he was just speaking about the the full gamut of emotions that he has run while playing for uh, Juventus, joining the team in 2001 uh, for you know obscenely large amount of money, which is still the record uh, amount of money ever paid to a goalkeeper. Um, winning the league, getting to a Champions League final in 2003, against Milan, saving two penalties in a penalty shootout, and yet still losing the penalty shootout. Um, and he, he was kind of saying that at that stage, I was a pretty young guy who had experienced a lot of success with Juventus. And, you know, I was upset at losing a Champions League final, but I was, well, you know, we'll probably be there next year. Like, it's not like that big of a deal. And uh, they've just never gotten anywhere close to it ever since. So it's a pretty amazing thing that he's 37 years old, 147 caps for Italy. And uh, all of a sudden, he's he's back in the back in a game of this magnitude. I can't understand why every manager, director, footballer, chief executive, or owner who's building a team at that level or at any level really doesn't start with the goalkeeper yeah. and isn't willing to part with massive money for the keeper. Say Roy Keane, even in, in fairness, didn't necessarily work out himself, and Craig Gordon didn't always see eye to eye. But I, I, I thought it was remarkable that people were shocked that he was spending was it nine or ten million a lot for Sunderland anyway. On a keeper, there's just it's so vital to get that right, and it's if you if you know what you're buying, it's almost a guarantee. It's not that it, with De Gea, there were the initial doubts just about his physique mm. and, and these kind of things. But it's not as though he has to fit into a certain tactical structure. He just has to do what he's been doing elsewhere. And it, maybe in the case of De Gea, had to bulk up a little bit and all those things. But the, the, the talk of possibly swapping if they were to get bail and lose um, lose De Gea. So that's some sort of a positive outcome. I, don't, I can't see yeah. it. I think you've got a guaranteed sort of 10, 12 points a season there with the really good keeper. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you see it in rugby, you know, that, that it's, it's, if you have a very specific skill set, say like a tight head prop in rugby, they're always like the second or third or fourth best paid player in the squad because they have a very specific skill that has nothing to do with the game, uh, the game. <laughs> outside of it. Yeah. It, it just, they're at, it's an, they perform an absolutely vital one task. And that's exactly what you, the goalkeeper should. The goalkeeper should be like the second or third best paid player in every squad. Mm. And yet, everyone always seems to think, "Well, we've got a goalkeeper. If he's fine, you know, if he starts throwing them in, we get another to, goal." Yeah, there's supposed to be a commercial argument that they don't necessarily. You don't sell as many goalkeeper jerseys as you are going to sell a Wayne Rooney jersey, but you are going to win leagues and get into yeah. Champions Leagues and get loads of money based on the fact that a goalkeeper. Yeah, is I just, to the business it, it's it you when you when you if you. Go back in time to Juventus in you know in 2001. They spent a large amount of money on Gigi Buffon, who had been very good for Parma already for the five years or whatever. But, I mean, I think they would tell you now that's a pretty good bit of business we did back then. Uh, we've got another podcast almost ready to go. Murph, it's going to follow hot in the heels of this one. Can you give us a brief outline? I've already ruined uh, one story for people, but a brief outline of what's going to be in that podcast. Yeah, it's uh, US Murph is going to tell us about um, uh, LeBron's uh, managerial meltdown. Uh, that's we're going to tell it three times now, uh, and then we also have a GA Championship preview. Uh, uh, the non pariz of uh, GA analysis, Oshima McConville and Anthony Moles, both joining us in the studio. And we also talked to Brian a little bit about our upcoming trip to San Francisco. We're flying out with Aer Lingus tomorrow, Murph. Tomorrow, mm, I know it's finally here, on it's finally here. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, to say like, I mean, are you a good man for getting up 
early, getting out to the airport early. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah, annoyingly yeah. so, I think, at times. I think I might annoy some of my travel companions. Okay. You might okay, be, well, maybe about to learn this. No, no, no. I, 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 have, I take a laissez-faire attitude towards it, but on this particular occasion... <laughs> Uh, what with you know transatlantic flights, horse. You know you gotta be gotta be out there in plenty of time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna see you there at six a.m. We'll get the rashers. We'll deliver you your first batch of San Francisco podcast next Monday, and we've got a live show lined up out there for the. I think we mentioned that we're going to have one, but it's going to be the Wednesday night. So that's next Wednesday, twentieth of May. If you're in the city, if you're around the city, if you're on the west coast, look, you can travel from the east coast of America if you really want. But we'd love to catch up with you and see you over there. We'll stick up the details of that live show on secondcaptains.com before we head off. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening to this one. And thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. We'll talk to you soon. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.